If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Jeremiah 25 this evening. And you may have never read this chapter before. I know, my, I know most of you, hopefully all of you, have read through the Bible. So when I say have never read it, I don't mean that you haven't read through it. There's a lot of chapters in the Bible we've read before, and you get done with them thinking, man, what did I just read? But that happens on Sundays when you hear a sermon too sometimes, so I understand. Um, <laughs> but the Bible's not dull. Sometimes I can be. Um, but sometimes we read the chapters, and we read God's Word, and we just kind of say, well, you know what, I hope that uh, I'll understand what that meant, what that was trying to say to me at some point, but uh, I don't know if I just got that uh, during my read. But I think one of, this is a chapter that you can read it, and you can read it and read it, um, and it might not really register all of what God's trying to say, but by breaking it down together, hopefully, and not because I'm up here, but because we're here together as a church, and uh, we're, we're seeking God's Word, uh, and we're reading God's Word, wanting to understand it. Hopefully, uh, as a church family, we'll be able to get to the bottom of what this text is all about. And I think you'll walk out of here thinking, man, that's one of, one of, the, one of the most important chapters in the Bible. Um, I, I can tell you that that's been uh, my uh, experience, spending time with this chapter the last uh, couple of days. So, Jeremiah 25, um, you know, I, I, I want to say this because it's been, it should have been said earlier in Jeremiah. Jeremiah has required a different approach um, than studying other books of the Bible. Maybe you've had to kind of adapt in your listening, in your own reading of this book. Um, you can't read, and, and I'm not trying to tell you how you, read, how you should read the Bible, but as a pastor, I ought to kind of help people out, I think. You can't read Jeremiah like you read in Genesis or like you read in Matthew. Uh, you, you can't open Jeremiah up and you start and start reading it and, and digesting it like you do one of the Old Testament narratives or one of the New Testament uh, uh, gospels or epistles. Um, you, you, you can't read uh, any of the Old Testament prophets um, like you read most of the Bible. Um, and, and what I mean by that, it takes a very different approach and it's a very different task when you study the prophets, specifically the Old Testament prophets. Um, it's easy to say, well, they're just deeper than other books, and you know, it's just not for me to figure that out because I'm just not, you know, I'm not, I, don't, I can't go that deep or I'm not that smart. Um, you know, and we just think, well, there's a divide there, and I'm never going to understand those books like I do maybe Genesis or Matthew or so forth. But, uh, and, and also, and I mean this in the most respectful way possible, the prophetic books are kind of weird. Um, and I say that as a weird person, so you understand where I'm coming from. The prophetic books, um, they're just, the, the, the writers just saw things different in their day. And, and for that reason, as they relayed things, they just come across very different and, and, and maybe strange to the average reader and even the average believer. And, and the reason why the prophetic books were weird, it's because the prophet themselves were very strange, very obscure. They were enigmas of their time. That They didn't have any friends, and they were very isolated. They were very uh, loners, if you will. Um, they saw things different than everyone else saw the, 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 in their day. Um, they weren't accepted by the religious people of their society. They weren't accepted by the political people of their society. They didn't take sides. They kind of just existed on their own. Um, and, and they were, for that reason, they were kind of, you know, marked and were kind of, you know, looked down on by most everybody. Um, you know, as we've learned from Jeremiah, Jeremiah was an equal opportunity offender. They wanted him to take sides, but he didn't. Um, he offended the religious and the political. He offended the sinners and the self-righteous because he was bringing them a word from God that just didn't really land with anybody's own and personal ideas and, and ideologies. And the reason why, the reason why the prophets were so strange and so obscure compared to those in their time, it's because they had spent so much time with God. 
And they were thinking like God, and when they began to spend time with God, that put them at odds with culture and at odds with society. And this will happen with you if you spend time with God. It will put you at odds with the way the world sees and the way the world thinks. And because of that, you'll begin to think and believe differently. Now, I think the modern parallel to the prophets would have to be pastors, not because I want to make myself look holier than thou. I just mean, in in general, pastors who submit themselves to the book and not simply to a church or to a tradition or to culture, and even Christians who are serious about God's Word, which I think if you're here on a Wednesday night, you're serious about God's Word, that we are similar to the prophets in their day uh, because we are putting ourselves under God's authority and God's Word, which is obviously in contrast to the way the world sees and the way the world thinks especially in today's time, but even so it was in the contemporary time that was given. If you read Jeremiah or any of his contemporaries, you get a sense that if they were not, you get the sense that they weren't normal people, um, and that's kind of a compliment, um, that they weren't, um, they weren't normal. And, and that's not to say they were always in tune with God. They weren't always happy with the work where God was taking them and what God was doing. Jeremiah, we've read, Jeremiah argues with God. Jeremiah contends with God. Jeremiah called God a liar on a couple of occasions, okay? And, and that's because Jeremiah was a human, and he didn't always process what God was saying the way, you know, th- th- he should have. Uh, but that was okay. God gave him room to figure that out. And, and what's unique about the prophets is it's really a dialogue. And we get to see Jeremiah talk back and forth with God and figure it out. Uh, it, it's not just given to us like Paul writing a letter or like Jesus preaching a sermon or like the Old Testament narrative telling a story. We get to hear Jeremiah hear from God and then relay it to people. And then Jeremiah says, I don't know about that, God, because they're not listening like you wanted them to listen and they're not agreeing with you. And then Jeremiah goes back to God and says, you know what, God, I don't know if I agree with you. And that's why we've seen this back and forth, this up and down of Jeremiah's own life, because he's trying to figure this out as God was given it. And and that's unique in the fact that the prophets give us that insight and give us that window into this dialogue between God and one of his own. Um, The prophets, and this is what I think is really cool about the prophets, the prophets are sort of like encyclopedias for the rest of the Bible. Um, Now, you probably uh, have study Bibles, you probably have um, commentaries, you have, uh, uh, you know, um, books that go along with the Bible, you know, dictionaries and Bible commentaries that kind of digest certain topics and, you know, systematic theology books, and I've got a whole shelf full of them and, you know, libraries uh, of all sorts. The prophets are like the original encyclopedias for the Bible because the ideas and the terms and the concepts that you find in the rest of the Bible, that the Bible upholds and leans on, they find their meaning and explanation in the prophets, whereas you don't necessarily go to the prophets for your explanation or for your meaning. The definitions you find in a, in a book or in, a, in someone else's you know, commentary or someone else's explanation, most of those things come from the prophets. It's just kind of buried and it's not picked up by the average reader. When the New Testament authors, if you read the New Testament, that there are so many references to the prophets um, when they're talking about a concept or an idea or a doctrine, you can often see that they're referencing, and they'll even you know, outright quote, the prophets. We rely on and lean on the prophets more than we might think, and obviously 
Jesus and the Apostle Paul, um, thanks to them, we understand the prophets without even having to read them because the, the New Testament just unpacks and, and, and translates the prophets for us in very short and very concise and simpler ways. Um, of course, I think we greatly benefit from going back and reading the source material, reading the depth of, of God's Word, um, but thankfully you don't have to to really get some of the concepts that are front and center in the New Testament. But if you have a study Bible, you probably, um, when you're reading the New Testament, when you're reading the Old Testament narratives, you'll come across um, footnotes and superscripts in, your, in the text. And you'll see these little you know, numbers or letters or numbers, and they'll reference them in the margins. And I guarantee you, if you're reading the New Testament, there are so many references in the margins to the prophets that just go through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, go through Paul's letters, go through Romans especially, and there are so many uh, references in the margins of those books to the prophetic books because they're building on concepts that were elaborated on over pages in the Old Testament, and then they're giving them to us in very short, very concise, more understandable ways. So again, thank God for that, but you can go back and read the Old Testament and get kind of the, the raw, rough draft version of it, uh, and I think that's really awesome. I think Jeremiah, you'll find, if you read the New Testament and you look in the margins, Jeremiah is referenced probably more than any other book because of, of how he really was laying out the foundation between Old Covenant and New Covenant and showing us the new way that God was working towards. I think that Jeremiah 25 is especially important um, as a source and reference chapter for so much of what we already know about God and what we take for granted about God that we've never realized it was from this chapter. But I think we're going to realize it from um, and after tonight. Jeremiah 25 is a rare glimpse into the very mind of God. We get a glimpse of his heart, a glimpse of God's code, a glimpse of his DNA. Uh, and, and a couple of things, a couple of things that we're going to learn tonight, I've got here at number four, or, or number, uh, yeah, number four. Um, we're going to learn um, about God's way being best. We're going to see that God's way is always proven best. And we're also going to learn that God's wrath must be atoned for. So those are, similar, those are similar in some ways, but also maybe different. So we're going to kind of, you know, have two different parts of the message tonight, but I think they'll come together in the end. Uh, but we're going to talk about how God is serious about his way being best, and it's going to be proven to be best, and also uh, about his wrath and how his wrath must be atoned for. So we're going to be kind of having two different conversations, but I think, I think it won't be as rough a transition as it might would sound. So... I want to first read Jeremiah 25, 1 through 11. And again, this is just Jeremiah repeating the sentence that God has given to Judah, that he is going to deport them, he's going to exile them, um, and now he gets specific about the where and about the time period that they're going to spend in exile. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So we've been hearing about this kingdom of the north, this kingdom that's going to come. Specifically, we're given information that it's Babylon. Which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, this 23rd year in which the word of the Lord has come to me. Come to me. So Jeremiah's been doing this for 23 years, and he wasn't done yet. I have spoken to you, rising early and speaking, but you have not listened. So, you know, if you want a summary of Jeremiah, it's right there. For over 20 years, he preached. They didn't listen. 
Verse four, the Lord has sent me to you, to all of his servants, the prophets, rising early, sending them, but you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear. So Jeremiah wasn't the first prophet. It's been going on for generations. You can turn backwards and find prophets way back in the books of first and second Kings. Elijah, Elisha, God had been trying to get their attention, but they would not listen. They said, repent now every one of his evil way and his evil doings and dwell in the land of the Lord that, the Lord that has given you. Uh, and to your fathers forever and ever. Do not go after other gods to serve them and worship them. Do not provoke me to anger with the works of your hands, and I will not harm you. Yet you have not listened to me. So we've heard that phrase about four times now. You have not listened, says the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. Again, God had their best in mind. They had their own you know, damage. They were gonna bring their own harm uh, on themselves by not going with him. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words, because behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, will bring them against this land, against the inhabitants, and against these nations all around, and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing, and perpetual desolation. So not a small thing, right? A big deal. God's going to make this a, a, a mark in time that's going to forever be pointed to and say, well, that's when God exported Israel out of its own land. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. So all these things that symbolize good things and blessings, God says, I'm taking away. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So very specific. This isn't going to be forever. This isn't going to be a, 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 you know, a thing that cannot be fixed or undone. This is going to be a 70-year-long timeout. Pause on the story of Judah or so we're told in this chapter. So we discover something really important in this explanation of their exile tenure. Israel's disobedience had began long before Jeremiah showed up, and it's gonna be longer than you might realize, or you might would suspect. God had been patient for generations. In fact, he had been patient with Israel for almost 500 years. So we've been talking about a couple of decades through the kings Jehoiakim and Jeconiah and, uh, and, and now Zedekiah, but turns out it's been going on longer than that. Now, let me explain in your notes, if you'll find 2 Chronicles 36, this is a little more of an explanation given to us by Ezra when he would write the story later on. He took them into exile into Babylon, those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. So now we have an explanation. Jeremiah tells it's just 70 years, but Ezra interprets that and says it was so that the land would enjoy its Sabbath. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 Years. So Jeremiah says, hey, they're going to exile for 70 years. Ezra tells us, well, the reason why it was 70 years is because that's how long would be required for the land to fulfill its Sabbaths. Now, what does that mean? Let's talk about it. Exile would last one year for every Sabbath year ignored. Let me say that again. Exile would last one year for every Sabbath year that was ignored. So 
the Sabbath year had been ignored for, seven, for, seven, uh, for 70 generations, as in every seventh year, there was supposed to be a Sabbath year for the land. I'll explain that in a minute. But every seventh year, there was supposed to be a Sabbath year for the land. So for that reason, it had been going on for over 490 years, because 7 times 70 is 490. Every seventh year for the last 490 years was supposed to have been a Sabbath year a resting for the land, and Israel had not kept any of them. Therefore, they were going to make up for that time. The land was going to sit empty for 70 straight years. What should have been spread apart across 490 years was going to happen back to back to back to back for 70 years. Now, what was the Sabbath year? The Sabbath year was a part of the much larger Sabbath law, which you probably could, could, could have said that yourself. So I want to explain the Sabbath law before we explain the Sabbath year because I want to make sure we understand this. Most of you already know this, but for somebody that might be listening that doesn't, I want to make sure it's clear. So the Sabbath law was given when they first came out of Egypt. Now we hear about the Sabbath in Genesis, but the Sabbath law was given when they came out of Egypt. Before they got to Mount Sinai, when they were crossing the Red Sea, they came to a place to camp, and then God began to feed them manna from heaven. But remember, on the sixth day, he gave them twice as much because on the seventh day, he was not going to give them anything. And he told them, I'm trying to teach y'all a lesson. I'm going to give you twice as much on the sixth day. So on the seventh day, you have to depend on the fact that I gave you enough the day before. You're going to trust in me. You're in the middle of the desert. You have no gardens because you're moving. You have no homes because you're moving. You have no supplies because you're moving. Listen, you're you're going to have to trust in me. And if I don't give you your daily bread, you're not going to have your daily bread. So you're going to learn. I'm going to spoon feed you for the next, next 40 years. You're going to learn that I am your caretaker. I am your provider. So that when you get in the land and you have all the stuff you could ever want, you won't be tempted to trust in that stuff. You'll remember that I'm the one that gave it to you. So for 40 years, every day, God gave manna from heaven. And on the sixth day of the week, on Friday, he gave them twice as much. And on Saturday, he gave them nothing because he gave them enough the day before. And all that was to teach them God will provide. Don't trust in yourself, in your provisions, in your ability, in your possessions, in your leaders. Don't trust in anybody or anything but God. So with the Sabbath law, he was inviting them to put all the pressure on him, trust in him. Of course, do all you got to do six days a week, work hard, save up and prepare, but you're going to have to rely on me to give you what you need on that seventh day. This was a hand-to-mouth society. There was no refrigerators. There was no way to keep things from spooling. You had it for a very short window of time or it was going to go away in front, go away right before you. So God invited them to trust him. It should tell us that we should not be wearied or we should not be worried. We should just believe that God is who he says he is. In Exodus 16, the Lord says, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. As in, don't go looking for something because I've already given it to you. The people rested. Now, it's not just about resting from work. It's resting from worry. It's resting from letting our minds work, trying to figure out how we're going to fix things, how we're going to provide for ourselves, how we're going to do this, how we're going to change this. It's believing that God can do what we can't and are unable to do. So God sees us often laying without a pillow, without a comforter, and he's shouting from heaven saying, why are you resting on ground that cannot support you, that cannot 
sustain you. So on top of the Sabbath day, there was the Sabbath year. Now this is even more insane when you think about it because people, clearly no one took it serious because they didn't obey it. So there was a Sabbath year. Now let me just read to you from Leviticus. It's here at number nine in your notes. It goes across two pages, so you might have to flip as we read. But I want you to read here what this Sabbath year was. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land, I will give you the land the land that I will give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male, female slaves, for your hired worker, your sojourner who lives with you, and for your cattle and your wild animals that are in the land. All its yield shall be, your, shall be for food, but after that year is over. Now, God wanted them to let the land rest every seventh year. It wasn't, people say, well, it was good for the land. It might've been good for the land, but God just wanted them to trust that, hey, I'm gonna give you enough. And you're gonna have to take your hands off the wheel. You're gonna have to let the economy stop. You're gonna have to let all the surplus stop growing. And you're gonna have to trust that I'm not gonna let you down. Now, the reason why they never followed this is because they didn't trust that God wasn't gonna let them down. The 70 years of exile tells us that they did not honor the Sabbath law for 490 years. So let's back this up. The number implies that during the reign of Israelite kings, from King David, Mr. Man after God's own heart himself, from King David onwards, so from 1050 B.C. to 587 B.C., the land of Israel did not enjoy a Sabbath year of rest. For about 490 years, it was a little bit less, but it rounded up. From David's reign to the exile, the land was farmed continually until it was long overdue for a Sabbath rest, in fact, up to 70 years. Why did the Israelite kings refuse to obey the law of Sabbath rest for the land every seven years? Why do you think they didn't, they didn't obey it? Because the economy would not survive a seven-year, uh, a once-every-seven-year layoff. The economy couldn't handle that. And ultimately, the people just could not stand the fact that they would have to hit pause on their own prosperity every seventh year. They couldn't accept it. It's not just an economical thing to let the land lie fallow. It was also believed it would help the land out, but they didn't see that. They could only see what they could gain in the here and now. Now, no wonder that they eventually quit believing in God altogether because they weren't from the very beginning, following this very simple prescription from God. If you want to foster faith in me, trust me like this. And they didn't do it. So you see what's going on. No different than what goes on in, uh, with us. They put their faith in men and money and material things more than they did in God. They, it wasn't just a, well, they had some bad kings here at the end. Even the good kings failed to acknowledge that God was the one true king. People again and again put their faith and their weight on men and money to hold them up and satisfy them. So God took them out of the land and said, well, now what's that going to do for you? Now what's all that land and all those stuff going to do for you? It's not going to do anything for you because you don't have it anymore. 
Their foundation was not secure. Their treasures were stored in places where moths would corrupt and thieves could break in and steal. Their faith was misplaced in men. Their weight was misplaced on money and material things. Israel knew better, and that's why God was disciplining them with exile. Now, the second half of this chapter, though, deals with the rest of the world. And it begins to look inward at Israel and wonder if their covenant with God was actually enough to hold them back from being judged for their sin. That was this 70 years of, of, of exile um, just a pause or was it, all, was it really the end of Israel? Because there was all this talk about the old covenant coming to an end. And Jeremiah says later on in the book that it is coming to an end. So there was this really this fear and this dread that maybe the judgment of God was not only coming on the rest of the world, maybe it was coming on Israel. Maybe there was nothing they could do to stop it. Now, down in chapter 25, verse 15, we get introduced to this conversation. For thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, take this wine cup of fury or wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. And they will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Now, if you read the next few verses, he mentions a lot of different nations, including Israel, but also the other nations that would have been uh, prominent and, and powerful in the day. Down at verse 27, we hear it again. You shall say to them, thus says the Lord God of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, drink and be drunk and vomit, fall and rise no more because of the sword which I send among you. And it shall be, if they refuse to take the cup from your hand and drink, then you shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, you shall certainly drink. For behold, I begin to bring calamity on the city which is called by my name. And, sh and should you be utterly unpunished, you shall not be unpunished, for I will call a sword on all the inhabitants of the earth. Does not paint a pretty hopeful picture, does it? Judgment was seemingly unavoidable. Even the people of Judah would not be spared. This is the reality that was coming upon the whole world. When? We, didn't, we don't know when, but we're just told that it was imminent. Israel had failed to trust in God. Was there hope for anybody? Verses 30 and 31, therefore prophesy against, all the, uh, against them with all these words. The Lord will roar from on high the utter, and utter his voice from his holy habitation. He will roar mightily against his fold. He will give a shout as those who tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. Treading the, wine, the, the grapes is the symbol of judgment coming. A noise will come to the ends of the earth, for the Lord has a controversy with the nations. He will plead his case with all flesh. He will give those who are wicked to the sword. So again, this is a this is a given. This isn't a maybe. This is just really the 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 um, condition the earth has come to, and there doesn't seem to be an option otherwise. Now I want to break this down for you. The cup of wine is a symbol for God's wrath. You'll hear about the cup of wrath or the cup of wine in the Old Testament, even the New Testament. It's a symbol for God's wrath. Now, what is God's wrath? God's wrath is his personal manifestation of God's holy moral, moral character in judgment against sin. So God is holy and he has a moral judgment against sin, which is unholy, which is doing harm to his creation. God's wrath is not partial, it's not vindictive, it's not malicious, it is God's impartial, holy indignation. Now let me make this very clear. God's wrath should not be confused with our own wrath. Our wrath is incapable of being impartial. 
We are influenced by sin too much to have wrath that is righteous. We can get mad about what's wrong, but we are still not able to have wrath against sin like God is because our own flesh is influenced and overcome by sin. And we see things with a partiality. But God is impartial. I want to be very clear. God's wrath is an expression of his holy love. It's not separate from his love. It's not conflicting to his love. It is an expression of his love. His wrath burns against, his, against sin's curse against humanity and against the damage it's done to and through humanity. Now, the Old Testament shows that God is merciful towards Israel, as in he postponed wrath. But here in Jeremiah, he makes the signal that there is no more postponement. There is no more delay. The wrath is coming even on his own people. It seemed as if there was no hope. Humanity was too overrun by sin. God's somber words to Jeremiah in verse 15 ring very loud. Take this cup and drink it. Drink all of it until you are staggering. Yet the cry of the prophets who knew God so very much was that mercy would yet prevail over judgment. We read verses like what Habakkuk gives us in chapter 3, verse 2. Oh, Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work. Lord, I do fear you, but in the midst of the years, would you revive it? In the midst of the years, make it known. In your wrath, would you remember mercy? So there was this intercession by the prophets because it made, God made it very clear through Jeremiah that it's over. Wrath is coming. I'm done postponing it. But Habakkuk says, Lord, in your wrath, would you remember mercy? And now... Jeremiah 25 has a sister text over in Isaiah 51. And I've got it here in your notes. Listen to this conclusion in that text that deals with a very similar subject. Therefore, hear this, you who are afflicted, you who are drunk, but not with wine, as in drunk with sin, drunk with, with you know, depravity, soon to be drunk with wine if you drink the wrath of God. Thus says the Lord your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold... I have, or I will take from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. So that's a promise from Isaiah. That God was going to, you know, Jeremiah seems to say it's a done deal, but that God at the last minute was going to take the cup back. And it was going to keep them from having to drink from his wrath. Or give them an option not to have to. As the story would go on, Israel's reestablished. They aren't destroyed. After 70 years, they come back together under Nehemiah, under Ezra, and there's hope that God is going to yet provide Israel a way uh, of salvation. But the question remained. The question lingered. What would God's wrath do, or where would God's wrath go? Would it subside, or would it be atoned for in another way? Now, here's the thing about God's wrath. It's holy and it's just. God hates sin and what it's done to creation. He cannot be holy and perfect and have a tolerance of sin. So sin must be dealt with, but how can it be dealt with and still preserve people of whom it has infected? It seemed logical that God would make, one, make, those who, make those who have sinned drink the wrath due to our sin. But if all of us are sinners, then there's no hope for anybody. Because if we all drink the wrath of God, then there's no one left. So God kept putting off judgment, but in doing so, he kept putting off justice. Because if God doesn't judge sin, then there's no hope from sin. Do you understand what the, the predicament is? God pro prolonged judgment. He put off judgment, but in doing so, he put off justice. So he was prolonging sin's campaign against creation. So it seemed as if God had a mess on his hands. How can he save people, but at the same time, judge sin? 
So the problem will persist because there seemed to be no good solution on the table. Because of God's mercy, the cup of wrath remained on the table. Would this always stand between us and God? Would we always have to relate to God in fear and trepidation, knowing at some point He would require debt that we owe? For centuries, this was the reality. There was nothing unfair about it. It was just a condition of creation. If God ever decided to pull the rope, we would be done for. We deserve judgment, yet God had mercy. I think this is a good way to summarize it, number 22. We deserved judgment, but God had mercy. God desired better, but we had sin. So what do you do to fix that? Wrath stood in the way of a real solution until Jesus showed up. At first, Israel thought Jesus came to renew God's covenant with them, to enact the judgment on the world because they thought they were different. They thought they were spared from it. John the Baptist said that the winnowing fork is in his hand. He's treading the wine press. Repent, because maybe he'll spare us and judge the rest of the world instead. Jesus preached that God was holy, that salvation was coming, but judgment was too. But how could both come? He made it clear that he wasn't restarting the old covenant. He was starting a new covenant. But what did that mean? All the while, the cup remained on the table until one night, you could almost hear the words of Jeremiah 25, 15 repeated through time. Over a garden called Gethsemane, it, you could hear faintly from heaven, take from my hand this cup of wine of wrath and drink it, drink all of it. But who was God saying this to? Not to Israel, not to any individual who had sinned, but to the only one who had never sinned. This is so big. This is, so, this is where it all changes for us. Matthew 26, an excerpt from the Gospels. Jesus says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. He tells the disciples, remain here and watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, my father, if it be possible, let this cup, what cup? We know what cup. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So suddenly we find God's solution, his desire for better. But also, how do you fix this sin problem that's in the way? How do you solve this wrath problem that's in the way? So Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane had a cup lowered from heaven and put in front of him in this wine press, in this olive press, where they took and drank the wine of the land, this cup of wrath of wine from heaven heaven was put in front of him he didn't want to drink it because he knew what it was yet he had come to drink it now if you know the story that he doesn't just hear this once not twice but three times he enters the garden and walks in and out in and out of, of the wine press and he hears this commandment take this cup and drink all of it and he says father if it's possible could you please let it pass from me but no he hears that commandment from God three times why three times I think I know because there was a cup of wrath in front of him for three different categories of people or creatures those that would believe those that wouldn't believe and those that couldn't believe as in the devil and his angels 
Because if God was going to pour out his wrath, he wasn't just going to do it partially because then there would be some outstanding debt. If it was going to be atoned for, it had to be atoned for once and for all. Even those that couldn't and wouldn't believe. So here's Jesus, the sinless perfect sacrifice who could substitute in our place in everyone's place and then he's hung on the cross and he cries out that prayer father forgive them because they don't know what they're doing but they really knew what they were doing didn't they they were cussing and they were mocking and they were laughing at Jesus and they knew what they were doing but Jesus said no we're going to see them as ignorant we're going to see them as without fault because God I'm asking you to put that fault on me and in that moment all the judgment due to every single one of us the torrent of hell that everybody could ever deserve was funneled toward one man Jesus on the cross every bit of the judgment of God was diverted toward him every bit of God's wrath was poured out on Jesus he accepted it and he suffered it yet it did not kill him He drank every last drop of the cup. The scripture says he was not recognizable as a person. Crucifixions made people in pretty bad shape, but they didn't make people look like what Jesus looked like. Jesus atoned for our sin in his suffering. He defeated our sin in his death. And he overcomes our sin with his resurrection. How did he atone for our sin? Because he suffered it and it didn't kill him because he was perfect and he could do that. But when he gave up his life, when he said, Father, into your hands I surrender my spirit, he died willingly as a sacrifice for you and for me. He allowed it to kill him so it could not kill us. It, we deserve to be killed by it, but it has no authority over us because Jesus said yes to the death that we should have deserved and should have taken without any option when he rose from the grave it overcame sin as in it gives us an opportunity to live apart from it so the cycle was broken not only did jesus drink the cup he provides a better cup a cup that could reverse the curse suddenly jesus's words at the passover dinner make sense doesn't it when he took the cup a normal cup of wine that symbolized passover and he said these really strange things about it he took the cup in Matthew 26, and he gave things, and he said, drink it, all of you. So similar to what God said in Jeremiah 25, verse 15, drink this cup, this cup of wrath, but Jesus said, don't worry, this is not a cup of wrath. I'm drinking that in a little bit. You drink this cup. This is the cup of my new covenant, which is going to bring forgiveness of sin. So this cup had always symbolized the wrath of God once put on the lamb temporarily, permanently put on Jesus. So now this cup was not about wrath. This cup was about grace. The cup of forgiveness of sins. I think the best way to summarize it and here at the end of your notes is Jesus drank our cup so that our sin could be removed. We drink his cup so that our souls might be revived. Don't you understand this? This is where you know, my theology comes out very clearly. Jesus drank the wrath of God for everybody. Of course, everybody won't drink from his cup. That's not because he hasn't poured a glass for them. 
so that we might find true rest in him, so that we might have confidence in God. I think it's appropriate to say that Jesus' death on the cross is the perfect picture of God's love. A picture of God's mercy, his judgment, his grace, and his wrath. It's a picture of God's love and that both in his wrath against sin, because God was trying to terminate sin, and Jesus put himself in that place to be terminated for us so that our sin might be removed, so that we might be freed from it. And also it's a picture of God's love and his mercy over our sin because Jesus suffered in our place that we might be forgiven. The cup of wrath is off the table. It's almost like we're at a restaurant and there has been a glass served for us. They didn't take our order because they just said, hey, you deserve this one glass. And that glass was brought to us all and we're sitting there and we know if we drink that cup, what's going to happen? We're not going to survive, but we had nothing else to drink. And if we don't drink it, someone's going to come and force us to. Eventually, we can postpone it, we can order appetizer and appetizer, and we can make this thing last all night, but eventually we're going to have to drink that cup. Whether we're lying in a hospital bed with a feeding tube, we're going to drink that cup. Yet God tarried long enough so that Jesus might walk into the room and remove us from the table and sit down at the table and take that cup and drink every last drop. Not just of your cup and my cup, but of everybody's cup. He took the wrath of God. He took the cup of wrath off the table. He drank it. And what did he cry in John? It is finished. What was finished? He drank it all. So that you and, my, so you and I could take a better cup. We can rejoice. We are free. We are forgiven. Now, I got to say this. Does God's wrath remain? Of course it does. Because not everybody's going to take from Jesus' cup. If we, like Israel, reject the promises of God's invitation, we will not just be exiled for 500 years. We will spend an eternity in judgment. Judgment that Jesus has already took for you. How could, how could anybody turn away from this? If you've tasted Jesus' salvation, I hope that you'll go out and tell the world that they don't have to drink from that cup of wrath. Though we deserve it, we've been delivered from it. I think that's pretty good, isn't it? We can take from a better cup. We can rejoice. I hope that you'll rejoice with me tonight. And I hope that you'll think a little, maybe a little more soberly, a little more somberly about what our salvation really means. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this. Thank you for this word. I can't imagine Jesus hearing those words, take this cup and drink all of it. Drink it until you cannot stand. Drink it until you cannot stand so that all we can do to you is hang you on a cross for the whole world to see. the Lamb of God, crucified, full of a cup he did not deserve to drink. Yet he did it, did it willingly. He did it without anybody forcing him to because that is the love of God on display. God, I pray you would help us understand your mercy and your grace in a brand new way tonight. Lord, help us to see that Israel didn't trust in you 
when they had this in their future, but in our past, we can't, we can't get away from this. We can't ignore this because 70 years is not on the line. Eternity's on the line. God, help us to go to every house. Help us to go to every person that we know and to remind them that Jesus Christ drank a cup for them. He died for them so that we all might could take from a brand new cup, a brand new covenant. Whereas he cried, it is finished. We can cry, we are free. We are forgiven. Thank you, Lord, for that privilege. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.